Hello, this is Graphic Policy Radio. This is your host, Elon Eleven, and this is a comics podcast. Any savvy comics fan knows the answer to the question of who would win in a fight is whichever character needs to win in order for us to tell a better story. But which story would win in a fight? Well, we're going to be answering that question today because I am with Steve Morris. Steve Morris is the second best comics critic from Yorkshire. He's written for several comic sites over the years, including The Beat, Comics Alliance, and CBR. In 2017, he started Shelf Dust, a website which covers comic books one issue at a time, and has been there ever since. Welcome to the show, Steve. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And so Steve is here today because of a really cool and sort of classically Shelf Dust project that they launched, and I'm really excited to be able to present it to you on the podcast. Steve, tell us about the top events event that we are doing today. This is the 2022 list project for Shelf Dust. A lot of websites run lists all the time, every day. We tend to do one every two to three years, which I think is just the right amount for our particular readership. I, I like lists. I think lists are great. I really enjoy reading them, but we do them very sparingly. And uh, this year we decided to ask comic critics to choose their favorite event storyline of all time. We asked over around 150 different critics, podcasters, vloggers. I think vloggers is still the word we use. I'm quite out of the picture <laughs> now. But we asked them to, to, to give me a list of their particular top 10 choices of big, dramatic crossovers. The sort of stories that affect you know a dozen different comics across six to eight months at a time, just enough time to fit a nice paperback at the end of it, uh, whether it be a crisis or a war or just you know <laughs> the latest invasion that's happened on on Earth, uh, whatever Jim Stalin's been up to this week, <laughs> whatever they uh, think of their favorite events of all time, I asked them to give me a list of their top ten picks, and then from that I did a lot of lot of slightly remedial maths on it and put them all into order. So at the end of November, I put together all the numbers. And over the course of December on Shelf Dust, we are now publishing the countdown from number 50 right down to number one. You know, I had a really hard time doing this. Like when I when you announced it, I was like, oh, this is so much fun. And oh God, I don't even know where to begin because it's the sort of thing where for folks who are not aware, it's not like they come to us with a ballot. We are coming up with the list whole cloth. So you just know, as soon as you submit your list, you're going to see somebody mention something that you forgot and be like, oh, why didn't I count that one? Um, or, you know, sort of have some internal questions of like, oh, I kind of want to list this thing, but I bet nobody else will think it's an event. So I'll just be, you know, wasting my vote. Maybe I should try to focus on ones that other people might be voting for or not. You know, like you, I, I, I kind of have a way of psyching myself out and getting myself confused. I, I had a real hard time, but I'm really glad I could participate in it. A lot of people were the same as, as yourself. Um, there's a lot of questions that come up with this sort of thing, which is, you know, why do I want to put my favorite event? Like, if my favorite event, let's say your favorite event of all time was um, Secret Wars. Well, Secret Wars is going to get lots of votes anyway. What if you've got a real soft spot for something like um, Trifecta, the 2000 AD crossover from a few years ago? Well, what if I put that near the top of my my results then it will get more points. Then we'll, re- we'll be able to represent that into the list. Knowing Secret Wars doesn't need to get many points to be in there anyway. There's a lot of <laughs> tactics in this that people don't realize. And then the thing as well about it, like you say, is there's so many events that you forget exist. You know, um, 
I think there's a lot of list, uh, a lot of um, events on this list. People, when they look at it now and it's publishing, they've gone, "Oh, I completely forgot that yeah. No Man's Land was something that might be counted as an event," or uh, "I didn't even think about um, the Invincible War, which is you know it takes mm-hmm. place in one issue of Invincible." You know, oh, I didn't think that counted, so I didn't vote for it. And there's a, it, it's a great way to make the comics community feel really bad about themselves, which is something I'm <laughs> enthusiastic about. Oh, for real? No. Or for me, for example, like I'd forgotten to list No Man's Land, but it was because I'd only read a couple issues of it. And when other people brought it up, I was like, oh yeah, that was really good. But I don't think I could have voted for it because I feel like I read such a small amount of it. Like you kind of get those sorts of... um, Yeah. And there's some massive events out there, you know, uh, especially, you know, I suppose about five, 10 years ago when they're in peak event season for comics. If you wanted to read something like, let's say... um, uh, fear itself or secret invasion or something for around that period of time you're not only just reading the the you know 10 or so issues of the main storyline but then you've got to read the tie-ins with every comic ties in with four or five different issues of it there's some um, uh, important content that happens in you know some random issue that's just been invented for the event um there's normally mm-hmm. something that involves um uh, ben Urich and sally floyd complaining about the <laughs> events there's there's yeah, all yeah, this yeah. stuff happening on the outside that you know it, mm-hmm. it, can you say can you say you've really read Secret Invasion unless you've read Secret Invasion Frontline, which I'm not sure existed, but probably did. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, you know, sometimes the side events, the side stories, etc., uh, can really make for it. Like I will tell you, one of the reasons, if not the main reason, Inferno was near the top of my list is because. God, I, I really love Daredevil Inferno stuff. Yes. Like, I'm like, I just really want to see Daredevil kind of have a sexy fight with a vacuum cleaner and then read some of white people's paranoid feelings about New York in the 1980s. Like, I, I'm just here for that. So it's true. Like, you know, the X-Men stuff, you got some Conan the Barbarian going on. It's interesting. But what's vivid for me is like the Daredevil storyline. I mean, I literally did an episode of my podcast about the Daredevil comics and Inferno. And if you tell most people, oh, well, you covered Inferno on my podcast, they're going to think I covered X-Men, which I did not. <laughs> and, and and why doesn't that vacuum cleaner, why isn't that vacuum returned, you know, as one of Daredevil's prominent villains? You know, we've seen Daredevil fight the Kingpin so many times, or, I don't know, Stiltman or the Owl or these sort of characters. Mm-hmm. Bring back the vacuum cleaner. When can we get Charlie Cox on screen, you know, do a 30-minute ball episode where he fights a vacuum cleaner? These are the things that I think the readers are really looking for. Um, and, you know, can you imagine a fandom based on uh, come around this? Like people making fan edits of, of, of Daredevil fighting a vacuum cleaner, a slow-mo, sexy Netflix, you know, style. Yeah, I know. I'm the audience. I mean, I have that framed on my wall. So, I mean, the comics mm. version. I love JRJR. What can I say? Um, yeah, exactly. I mean... So, you know, I don't know. It it, it 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 was a lot of fun, but also felt really overwhelming. I think that, um, in fact, when I began working on my list, I was actually like, I don't even like that many events, so I don't know if I can even fill it out. And yeah. then it was this whole thing where it was like, I like and don't love a ton of things. So how do I choose between this, this long amount of things that I like but don't love? So Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's, that's the thing. Because, you know, there's a lot of events where... Um, I'll keep going back to Secret Invasion as an example, but mm-hmm. the concept of Secret Invasion, there's something fantastic in that, the idea that, you know, your characters that you've known for for years now, some of them have been replaced years ago, and all the weird character choices they've made for writers, actually it's because they were scrolled the whole time. That sounds like a great idea, it's a great concept. 
the actual execution of Secret Invasion, you know, a lot of people look at that and go, well, that was incredibly ropey. And um, it feels like the creative team really put a few strange ideas about 9-11 into their comic that shouldn't have mm-hmm. been there and basically mm-hmm. made the comic version of Homeland. And Oh, my God. Yeah. Yes. And it's like, and, I mean, for me, it's like I am so praying that Marvel movies do not do Secret Invasion because in order to make it not play into anti-Semitic tropes, it would take the greatest creative minds of our generation. And I just like yeah. don't trust them. Like, I don't think they're going to be like, let's make this anti-Semitic. But like, it's so hard to make a Secret Invasion storyline where they look just like you and me not playing into anti-Semitic tropes. And like when Secret Invasion was happening and I was a young, I don't even know if I had published any criticism at that point in time. I was like, oh, this is really interesting. And now looking back on it, I'm like, I don't know if I want people to go there actually. Yeah. Well, one of the events that did make the top 50 and most people who put it in there gave it, gave me a caveat on this was uh, Invasion, which is Mm. the DC storyline where the uh, the Dominators uh, are the, are the villains and the Dominators have just had a redesign uh, uh, just ahead of the uh, the, the storyline starting, which is I would I would believe is is incredibly racist in its appearance. Mm-hmm. Um, and DC CW, the, the the what's it called, the Arrowverse, that side of things, yeah. they actually did a version of Invasion, and they had to really think about how they're going to redo this because it's very hard to recreate that story in the modern age without looking like it was anti-Asian imagery because that's the design of the Dominators was drawing on stereotypes uh, from mm. the time period. But yeah, I appreciate it in that when you're like, I'm not going to post this art because it's racist. <laughs> I'm like, oh, duly noted. I'd never heard that series before, but I completely believe you. So I'm like, yeah. Yeah. And again, yeah. the um, the story is meant to be very, very good. I'm not, I'm not, I've, I've not read it for a long time. I can't remember it very well, but the stories, uh, as far as I remember, is a good one. It's simply that the character design is really, you know, really poorly put together and, and it shouldn't have happened. And again, like you say, you know, some aspects of the comic, great. Other aspects, not so good. So people will avoid invasion, even though it might be one of the better stories DC's published because the element of it, they don't want to be celebrating. And, you know, that's how things change over time, I suppose, which is really, you know, something I embrace. Well, I want to tell our listeners, like for me, one of the great pleasures in preparing for this was I really love reading your blurbs. Like you have such a delightful, funny, light, but incisive tone. And um, I, you know, I, I want to sort of hear a little bit about sort of like how, what is your process for writing blurbs for 50 events? It seems like you're familiar with most of them, but not all of them. There was a, there was a couple where you made funny jokes about like, I did this on a Wikipedia entry, but um, yes, there's a, there's a lot of reading if you're going to read everything, and uh, I did not have the time or patience for it. Um, yeah, well, I think one thing about the list, so it's a top fifty list of the best events. Um, I didn't actually vote in it myself, um, mm-hmm. so my voice is not represented in the actual top fifty anywhere. My my picks, you know, are my own, and they don't appear here. So what I could do is when I wrote this up, I had no real attachment to anything that I was putting up. And I could basically put up and I could say, right, well, you know, here is the final issues of Promethea, I think, uh, are in position mm-hmm. 30, um, because that's kind of like an apocalypse that Alan Moore created with J.H. Uh, Williams III and uh, ended the entire AB- America's Best Comics line with this story. Now, I'm sure creatively it's very well done. It's very impressive. I picked up the issue, looked through it, and I was like, I do not care. So 
I skim through it to be honest, and my write up then reflects the fact that mm-hmm. I'm sure this is great. I'm sure it's like you know very literary, and everyone's you know everyone who reads it comes out feeling smart and clever, and that's great. Uh, <laughs> I really just wanted to get through that so I could talk about the X Men, which is the next one on the list, which is the Bazaar Complex, which I actually really like. So hmm. uh, for me, I try not to put much um, importance on the list. I know the list is uh, wrong. I know the list isn't isn't you know. Uh, isn't something that we should like take as like, oh this is this is definitive this is this is absolutely correct these critics have done a great job I know I know it's there to give you a guidance on things and look at it and go well I agree with some of it I disagree with some of it and if my commentary throughout the the actual countdown is saying well I think this is a, in a few places too high or this place shouldn't gone in the list or this is this is underrated that, that I think hopefully that gives people more of a grasp of like well my choices would have been different from the list. And in fact, the guy writing it thinks it's different from the list. So it kind of gives more people a chance to look at it and think this is a list for that I can enjoy rather than this is a list which is going to make me feel annoyed that my comic didn't reach the top spot or annoyed that this comic was so high or or, or so on. So it trying to keep it irreverent, to be honest, and, and, mm-hmm. and make it feel like this is this is I thought it's just a bit of fun. It's it's nothing that you take too seriously. You don't need to go on to comic vine you know next week and start right retyping up the hulk's power levels because this this <laughs> list said that his he was the best in 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 secret wars 2 or whatever so yeah i i i don't try and take comics too seriously i think and that's um hopefully part of shelves as a whole i suppose is um uh you know you can you can really enjoy comics while taking the piss out of them sometimes and i think that's that's something we forget to do sometimes but as you mentioned from the example from ABC, your, your list also, you're not just looking at it creative, creatively, you're also looking at it from the lens of the publishing industry and as well as the people and the creators behind the series, which I think is important. Um, and so how do you sort of strike that balance between analyzing, especially something like events, which we all know are in a, to, at a certain level about you know comic sales mm. more so than they are about making art in most cases. Like, how do you balance the analysis of where something is about the industry, uh, about the creative team as individuals, and then versus where it is about the actual, you know, fictional people in the story? I think this plays into how I write for the website in general, because the idea of Shelf Dust is that every essay on the website is about one single comic book issue. So, you know, uh, we don't write about... um, Nightfall, for example, but we might write about one issue that came halfway through Nightfall, and we'll talk about something interesting in there. And the idea of that really is to try to find hyperfixations on things. So mm-hmm. um, rather than talking about a long run of the entirety of Chris Claremont's X Men, you might pick one issue and talk about this particular thing that he did, or Paul Smith did, or, or whatever. So for me, when I'm, t- I'm writing uh, about single issues, that's what I'm looking at, and that just translates into the events. So. When I look at an event, I look at it and think, well, what's the thing that actually interests me about this this whole thing? Because even if I don't think a comic should be in the top top 50 list or I don't like the comic or the style, there's something in there that's going to be at least interesting. Um, and that might be, you know, saying, oh, well, this 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 comic does a really cool thing with Batman and that's, well, isn't that great for Batman? What a, what a fun thing. Or I might just be saying, hey, this, this Cosmic Odyssey storyline Mike Minola doing um, DC Comics. That's what's interesting thing about this one. Or um, Final Night, the, the, the you know really early Stuart Imnen uh, artwork on a big project. So for me, it's really just about looking at whatever's whatever's the single interesting thing about uh, about a comic. Not just going, 
what does it mean for the future of you know gambit and rogue relationship it's thinking what is the actual thing in this story that actually gives it some longevity and is worth you know worth writing about and again makes makes a, a list that readers will want to look at and think this 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 is actually interesting to read it's it's talk about different things the things that everyone else talks about so so for me it's it's just i suppose it's that sort of approach really it's it's just trying to, to really dig into whatever stands out the most and and you know, dig into it and why why it's there, why it's something that we should be exploring in more detail. No, totally. But I, I, I really do think Shelf Dust does a really good job of looking at how the um, publishing and uh, human factors of editorial factor into artistic choices that you see on the page um, and in ways that I think can be really enlightening for people while also really being adorable and taking the piss out of things that deserve it i think i um i i want to just read from one of your blurbs where you talk about siege which is i'd forgotten to include and i don't think i would have included but like has its mm-hmm. moments uh, you write in which brian michael bendis finally wrote a story with an ending siege is the finale of his grand dark rain era which saw norman osborne take over running the country with the assistance of a vast team of villains including his thunderbolts whom he turned into the new avengers namor emma frost and loki the heroes all either went into hiding or, in one case, became a Frankenstein, and Norman was left to run the world with only his sanity for company, so that didn't go well. And then you accurately pointed out how it predicted the Trump presidency. Like, that's that's a Steve Morris blurb. Love it. Love it. <laughs> Isn't that so strange, though, that, you know, mm-hmm. um, Norman Osborn, he, he did become kind of like this, 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 just a few years ahead of. You know this this sort of like um, representative of what what would happen in future when the celebrities got into politics. You know, mm-hmm. um, and that's something I don't I don't know if Brian Michael Bendis was was predicting this or if it was just something he looked into. But you know, Norman Osborn as as like a figurehead for the entire Marvel line is so interesting once you've um, lived through Trump presidency, or yeah, in my case, lived through you know the Tories who are still here. Um, yeah. In in the UK, but yeah. this idea of um, leadership as uh, fit as 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 a wrestling promo, you know, because that's what mm-hmm. Trump was for four years. He was he would go on tour around stadiums and he would give promos, you know, <laughs> like he like he thought he was Dusty right. Rhodes or something. But then in 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 Siege, you know, um, seeing that you actually got to see like the people stand up against him and. Yeah, it's 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 one of these things. You, you can look at Siege and go, "Oh, isn't it great to see Norman Osborn get punched in the face?" But you would never expect, like a few years later, that you can reread it now and it's it's suddenly become much more satisfying than it was at the time. Um, yeah, there's quite a few stories like that as well. To be honest, um, uh, for myself, Fear itself was a comic I didn't really care about at the time, uh, but reading it now, I think that's really prescient. Um, it's got lots of little subtle things in there about. The, the soul of America, in a sense. There's a lot of hmm. little themes running throughout that story, which is mainly about the Avengers getting loads of big hammers so they can fight loads of villains who've got bigger hammers. Um, but in the, <laughs> in the background, you've got people worrying about losing their jobs and, and, and they can't afford the house anymore, so they've got to relocate. Or you've got the fear of um, uh, the, the well, right-wing fear of the, the, the immigrants coming over to, to our country and, and pushing us out of our quote-unquote native lands. And these little things that were seeded in there by by uh, Matt Fraction and Stuart Imlen, you don't maybe at the time you weren't really paying attention to it, but 
on a reread now, it's amazing how those stories have become much more resonant, I think, to modern readership. They were ahead of the time, I think. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, what I have a question, which was just sort of like, you know, what are some of the events that are older that this process has sort of unearthed for you that you were like, oh, that actually was good? And maybe not just camp value. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think one for me was probably uh, Inferno, which mm. I read. It's one of the first comics that you kind of, if you get into the X-Men, and around the time I got into the X-Men was around the time of oof, uh, Joss Whedon, um, and then mm-hmm. um, Mike Carey, who kind of saved comics after that for me. Um <laughs> But then you go back, don't you? And you try and find the, the, the big storylines. And Inferno is one of the big ones. But I don't think there's anyone who reads Inferno um, in, you know, in in a more modern age, reads it and goes, oh, this makes sense. You read it and you understand parts <laughs> of it. And a lot of it just goes right over your head. And then then that's inspired you to go find other bits of it and go check it all out. So when I first read it, I was like, oh, well, this seems generally interesting. I, I like this bit of it, but I don't know who, you know, um, don't know who Gossamer is. Don't know what that's all about. Um, <laughs> but then reading it again for this list, I was just struck by how dense it is, how much there is in there, because I've now done all the background reading. I know who these characters are. I know their stories and where they're going as well, uh, which I imagine Claremont must have known. Um, and that one really, really pulled out for me. Um, mm. The other one um, would be The Apocalypse War, which is 2000 AD, uh, which is a... a yeah. Relatively early Judge Dredd story in the in the in the grand uh, in the grand uh, tapestry of things, um, but the Apocalypse War is, I think, for that one, that's most people's introduction to Dredd because everyone says if you're going to read Judge Dredd, you read the Fifth Case Files volume, and that's the big story mm-hmm. at the end of it. But reading that again um, was revelatory for me, and that's actually pushed me into a massive 2000 AD kick throughout the rest of 2022, where I've been reading. Uh, I've got about 10 different case files now. I've been reading uh, Judge Dredd spin-offs like Simping Detective and Lawless and Judge Anderson. So, yeah, th- those two in particular were ones that really hit for hit for me, I think. Hmm. Well, one thing I, I also think about a lot is that the, there's sort of this tension between recency bias and nostalgia. Um, and, you know, how do you feel like those balance each other out in terms of where votes land in a big poll like this, because certainly, you know, the most, we have some real recent events up mm-hmm. there. Um, it kind of, well, I, I don't know. You've looked at more carefully than me, like in terms of like where things fall, do you feel like recency bias or the 10 years ago nostalgia bias? Cause you, we definitely do see old, like there's a few things in there that are from the eighties, um, mm. but we definitely, I don't know. Like, how do you think that balances when it comes to, uh, the end results. I I think it definitely plays a really big part in it. And um, one one of the things you can criticize about the list, perhaps, is the um, the people who polled for it. You know, um, hmm. the people uh, who are polled for it are mostly people who I I know. So you could very easily argue and say, well, Steve, you are a person who started reading around the twenty tens, let's say. So you probably know a lot of people who are also reading around the twenty tens. So that's why. You see a lot of comics from around that time appearing high up in the list. Are you asking the people who grew up in comics and were reading in the you know uh, the sixties, the seventies, you know, um, and 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 before then, or are you? Do you know a lot of the 
all of these kids, apparently there's still comics critics being born, which is a nightmare for me, <laughs> but all these kids who are coming up yeah. who, 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 you know, their, their first event was like, I know, Empire, you know, the Dan Slott one. Um, so you definitely see in the final list, there are some older stories, I think, that get uh, pushed uh, away from where they should be. And some newer stories get pushed higher than they should be as well. Do you feel like any of the events are actually good starting point from this list are actually good starting points for new readers? Ooh, um, a lot of the ones that are near the top are not. So um, I, I think the ones that are the most popular, the ones that are concluding a story rather than starting something and getting you in on the ground level for something new. Um, having said that, there's a lot of stories that I think do probably give you a good jumping on point um the the apocalypse war as i said is probably one of the best starting points for judge dread that you'll mm. you'll get anywhere um but you probably don't want to start off reading superman with the death of superman kind of a and yet so Christ. many people did so yeah. many people did that's the weird part right yeah exactly yeah um you know um uh, do you want to start reading with world war hulk no you want to start reading with planet hulk really but would, would enough people class that as an event to hit in the list so yeah, I think events do tend to be an ending point to something rather than a starting point. Um, and, and when you go further down the list, maybe you do find things that, start, that, that give you a starting. Like um, Night of the Owls is quite a good place to start for Batman if you wanted mm. to because that has basically informed every bit of Batman media in the years since. You know, the Court of Owls show up in every new storyline that's, you know, any new piece of media about Batman, they show up now because it's so popular. Um, mm. You you probably could argue that something like, um, uh, what else have we got on the list? Well, uh, I know it's... factually that for a number of people of my generation, um, uh, AO Age of Apocalypse was their <laughs> jumping on yes. point for X-Men, despite the fact that it's an alternate reality and a preposterous jumping off point for somebody to begin reading. Um, yeah. And I think that happens to people a lot. I think some people do get sucked into the idea that like, this is the time things are going to change forever. And Age of Apocalypse, there was no indication, I don't think, that the Xbox were going to go back to the way they were. This was the new the new normal. So people could go, right, well, that's where I'll start. You know, a bit like with um, similar mm. events like House of M, I suppose, or or No Man's Land. You think, oh, well, actually, they've created oh, yeah. a new status quo now. This is where I'll jump on. And obviously, in the long term, we always know that comics go back to where they started. They always revert back, you know. Um, you could probably say the same thing will become true. Give it 10 years and will House of X slash Powers of X, will that still feel like a, you know, uh, a, a new era or will it just be, that's what the Xbox used to be, but now they're back in New York and Charles Xavier runs the school again and, and things just come back mm -hmm. to where they were. So yeah, it's, it's, it's something that time tells, doesn't it? Like the Doctor Who says it always does. So <laughs> That's probably the, uh, the the thing of these events is um, you, you might think there's um, there's there's jumping on points, but actually it's a jumping off point. You might think jumping off point was a jumping on point. Uh, you know, I know, I, I think that there's stuff like House of House of X Powers of Ten is like it's a good jumping off point if you're familiar with the X Men in general, but haven't read them lately. Is the sort of thing I think is true for a lot of books, you know. Um, or like these can be jumping on points to get you caught up with something, but they're not like baby's first superhero comic, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and you you always have to ignore parts of it in order to 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 get it as a starting point. If you wanted to have Hawksbox as your first story, you've kind of got to overlook the fact you don't really know what's going on with Moira 
you know, that's that's a story that has taken 40 odd years to kind of like mm. hit this new point. And that's why the, the relaunch makes so much sense and has such a kick for people because she's she's had this 40 years of experience. And it's the same for a lot of stories on that list. You know, you've got to kind of, you've got to, you've got to basically say, where am I going to compromise? You know, am I, am I willing to start reading um, uh, Batman of Nightfall uh, knowing mm-hmm. that I've got to get through the Bruce Wayne bits to get to the Azrael bits, which are kind of like, that's the new, that's the new normal for me. So yeah, it, it's a problem with comics as a whole, I suppose you could argue, especially mainstream comics is there's never really a true starting point. Everything always has to, at some in some way, reference what's come before, um, simply because you've got that ongoing readership you want to keep keeping your in your you know in your comic shops, uh, and think, you want to make yeah. sure they're reading things. I mean, I think I think publishers, I think sometimes think of events as being jumping on points, when I think for a lot of people they're a jumping off point. A friend of mine stopped reading DC when conversions happened because. DC told him it was the end of the DC universe. So he's mm. like, okay, then I guess I have license to, <laughs> to stop reading DC now. Yeah. I, I found it interesting. Convergence, convergence did not end up on the list at all. I don't, I don't think. Right. Um, it did not. Uh, it and did I think broke, it's some, though. Yeah. I will tell you, I'll tell uh, yeah. you where it ended up on the list in a second, but yeah, oh, keep, tell keep going. Me. Sorry. I was going to say, I think it's interesting because it's like that. I, in some ways sort of seems like the biggest recent event to not map. And um, I agree. I did not vote for it there. Like, but um you know, I don't, I, I don't know. I think like they kind of get it backwards, the jumping on versus jumping off points for people with events. I mean, what do, do you, you, why did you choose events as the next top 10 list for people to compose for you, for the website? I was forced into it. Um, I was, I was, I was recommended it uh, as an idea mm. by someone. Um, uh, let's, Drop down the anchor. Um, Kieran Gillen wrote to me and said, "I've been talking about comic events with a friend recently, and you know, Steve, you do these stupid lists that no one likes. Uh, why not do another stupid list no one <laughs> likes, but about events?" And I was like, "Why not? That sounds like it could be fun, I suppose." Um, forgetting that every time I've done these lists in the past, it's been an absolute nightmare. Um, mm. So, really, it came as a suggestion from someone else, um, and I just kind of jumped on it um, and, and went from there with it. Well, it's true. If Karen asked me to do something, I probably will. So you raise a good point there. And then, of course, what immediately happened was a ton of rules lawyering between critics and you. Mm-hmm. Um, shockingly, you told me I was the only critic who asked you what counts as an event, which... I, I, as far as I can tell, I've, had, I've gone back for the emails. I think you're the only person who, who said, Steve, let's talk about this before I make my choices. Everyone else just like jumped in headfirst and... and you know. <laughs> made a mess of it but you were like no i want to be careful i want to be rational i want to think this through i don't want to make a mess of this and so we got to talk it through and uh, and we got to kind of uh, you know decide what what counts because a big part of this whole project was people suggesting things that probably don't count as events and um we kind of tried to start ruling some of them out and say to people oh, well thank you very much it's brilliant that you've chosen um um this issue of archie as your um, <laughs> as your event of the year However, that's just a story where he doesn't decide between Veronica and Betty. It's not really an event. It's just another issue of, of Archie. So okay. we, we did have to kind of say to people, well, a great top 10. However, eight of them are wrong. Do something else, please. Well, I'll Which now raise... The number one controversy, as we all know, is in fact a question that I brought to you, which is why are we not allowed to count 52 as an event? Steve, Why? I hate 
booster gold and i think ah, the truth comes that. out no 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 um <laughs> 52 was the number one complaint i I, I had a few people who helped me with this list and we kind of, every time someone said a story to us that I wasn't quite sure what that was or if it counted, I'd talk to them and they'd go, mm, let's have a debate about it and work out if it was an event or not. 52 was one where I, I was the one leading the way and saying, I don't think it counts as an event. 52 was a story that launched out of an event uh, and then ran as an ongoing series for a year. I, I don't think you can call... 52 an event in the sense of it was just an ongoing story uh really within dc and in fact the events around it uh was a separate event so when 52 got to the point towards the end where it's telling an event storyline it broke off and did that as world war three in a separate title so actually the spin-off of 52 was the event rather than 52 itself in my mind um mm-hmm. i think an event has to have there's kind of innate qualities of what makes an event an event, what doesn't make an event an event, and people will disagree with me on this, but I think there's one factor that you need is eventiness, and um, it's, it's an oh, X yes. factor. It's an X factor. You can't really say, but I kind of look at for certain things and just go, that does count, that doesn't count. And with 52, it wasn't a... It wasn't really a single story. It was a lot of different stories that, that happened for you know a few months at a time, then concluded or tied into other stories or didn't or, or so on. And I think 52, there's a few events that are, uh, that are similar to it. You know, uh, Multiversity is quite, uh, is probably the closest example of it. Mm-hmm. And maybe even Seven Soldiers of Victory. But I think those humor to the general idea of a event storyline than 52 did. Um, given 52 didn't really even know what the ending was when it started. It was running on the uh, the rules of an ongoing series rather than running on the rules of a event narrative. I would suggest. Well, what um, <clears throat> I see. <clears throat> Why yeah, don't you do so many Grant Morrison? No. But, uh, but although you did calculate where 52 would have fallen had you allowed it to count. Uh, I did, yes. So um, if... Um, yeah, so when people sent me their lists, um, if their list, I thought, oh, there's some choice on here that probably shouldn't really be on here, I would say thank you for that list, but can you give me a new list, please? The original list I put into a separate big countdown anyway, just so I had it on record. So I've got um, the final list, which is the one that's publishing, and I've got a list which is everyone's first choices of events and, and what would have happened. If 52 had counted... Um, and this is bearing in mind the fact that, that your own vote 52 didn't get to happen because you talked to me before. We had a consultation, um, exactly. <laughs> a, a, proper, a proper formal uh, treaty about it. Um, 52, if it had um, been counted, it would have ended up in 12th place on the list overall. Uh, it actually would have been a, a few points behind Multiversity. Hmm. So it wouldn't so, have cracked wow. top 10. Why do you think Grant Morrison events are so popular and great? I think Grant Morrison appeals to very particular people, and most of them are comic critics. Um, we've done two lists in the past. Um, <laughs> I think, yeah, I think Grant Morrison's a sort of writer who their work rewards people who are trying to be clever about the analysis. Um, so in our previous list, we had the top 100 single issues of all time, mm-hmm. which um, Grant won with that issue of All-Star Superman, issue 10, I think it was, uh, the one where Superman's doing his sort of like last 
good acts before he he kind of like goes into the end game. Um, and then we had the top 50 number one issues, which again, Grant Morrison yes. was ranked very highly on throughout that list. I think Grant Morrison is a terrific writer. However, I also think a lot of people read it and there is, there's, there's meaty stuff in there to grapple with. Um, which is a weird way of putting it. I don't like that at all. <laughs> um, but um, it's you read you read a Grant Morrison comic and you come out and you go, well, it's about something, and he's uh, they've got a point they want to make about things. Um, and then you can go and you can write an essay about it, and you feel quite happy about having written an essay about it. And I think Grant Morrison is a writer who, in particular, rewards someone who thinks about the comic afterwards. Um, other writers. Uh, Brian Michael Bendis is a very good example of this. He is all about the moment of reading. While you're reading a Brian Michael Bendis comic, you are having a great time. It's racing along very quickly. The dialogue's snapping away. You know, mm -hmm. he's doing his mammoth impression, all that sort of stuff. That's great. <laughs> Grant Morrison is all about you go away and you think about the comic, and then you, right. you know, you you, you kind of consider it later. So I think their comics do appeal to people mostly for mostly to comics critics, I think, because, or all people who, you know, at least have some sort of like, you know, interest in analyzing comics because you go away and you think about it. And that's, that's half the joy of the comic itself. So for me, that's well, it. I I'll, don't know. Yeah. How do you feel? Well, I, I think that, yes, Grant Morrison makes a lot of events that are about continuities and timelines. And those are topics that lend themselves to events. So like, I think the things that Grant Morrison, some of the things that Grant Morrison is interested in writing about are things that lend themselves towards events. Therefore, they mm -hmm. write a lot of really popular events. Um, <clears throat> you know, I hadn't read Multiversity because when it came out, I was really overwhelmed with a lot of other stuff I was reading. And I had Multiversity uh, looked like it was something that was going to require I read this huge quantity of comics that felt really overwhelming. And now, thanks to your list, I realized that Multiversity is actually not a million trillion comic books. And now mm. I actually feel like, oh, I guess I can go read Multiversity. Sim similarly, um, Final Crisis was ranked number two. Final mm. Crisis has always been at the top of my list of things that I should like but didn't. Uh, yeah. Because I'm the world's biggest... I am both. I, I love Grant Morrison. I will not say I'm the world's biggest Grant Morrison fan because they've written so many things I haven't read yet, but I love Grant Morrison. And I am like... I. Kirby's fourth world is like, I have a sleeve of Corby's fourth world on my arm. So I, I had read Final Crisis um, earlier in my deep love of fourth world. And I remember at the time being really upset by it. I remember mm. there being a few things in it that I liked and a lot of things that upset me. And then in preparation for us talking, I, I ended up rereading the, the the core seven books of Final Crisis last night, like you inspired me to go back and do it, oh, and nice. now on my second reread, I like it a lot more. Um, I there's some things that I still find upsetting. There's a few things that I find upsetting that I know are kind of like Ilana things and shouldn't disqualify its greatness. Mm. Um, and uh, but I'm glad I reread it. You know, so that's one of the values of the list. And I think that's true of other stories around that topic as well, because um. Another one that charted quite highly was um, Seven Soldiers of Victory, uh, which is love in, it. Uh, place number nine. L mm -hmm. Love it. Do you love the Mr. Miracle story? Because that's four that's issues out of the entire thing. Yeah, that's that's complicated. You know, there's things that I, I, I'm glad that someone, 
actually went and cared about Shiloh Norman, really. And like, mm. I mean, Kirby cared about Shiloh Norman, but like it was all near, near the very end of, um, near the end of the book. And there's some, you know, this was written in 73 challenges that are yep. going yeah. on there. Um, <clears throat> and um, I think like, I haven't re I haven't reread that part of it for a while, but what, what I, are I you thinking? I wouldn't recommend it. It's um, uh, yeah, we we actually wrote a series about um, Seven Swords of Victory uh, a, a few years ago for the MNT, which then republished onto shelf. Just where a different critic did every issue of one of the miniseries. So uh, I think it was Sarah Century had the pleasure of doing the Mister Miracle four part miniseries, but it is really tough to get through especially in the modern age it does a lot of mm. it, it does a lot of things to the, the 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 i suppose the black body uh in that series which shouldn't really be in the purview of a white, white writer, writer. Uh, and i say that as a white critic as well i'm I, i'm not the person to speak on it but reading it myself and sorry we, we realized oh this is you know, this is something that really shouldn't have been published the way it was published. And if it was right. happening again in 2022, it wouldn't happen. But right. you, you, I suppose, again, it's Morrison and Kirby have an interesting relationship that doesn't get analyzed as much as Morrison and Moore. Um, but I think it's interesting. There, there are some writers who, when they get the chance to write a big event or a big story or have a project like Seven Swords of Victory or um, Multiversity or Final Crisis, they... I'm using it to commentate on the industry. Um, and other writers just want to do, you know, a cool fighting story, and that's about as far as the commentary goes. Um, the, the, there's one event which is not on the list at all because it didn't finish by the time uh, the list was being made, which was uh, Judgment Day. Mm. And I would say Kevin Gillen, I think, is another writer who, when he's writing a story like a big event of some kind, he's writing it partly as a commentary on what he's actually doing. He's commentating on himself. Uh, which is a thing mm -hmm. that Morrison does. So, and um, I think it'd be interesting if this list was done again in five, ten years or so, these self-commentating writers, where would their projects end up on the final list? Would Morrison still have things like Final Crisis and Multiversity so high up? Would they drop down and, and more classic events would stay in their place? I think we're interested to see where things stood in you know a few years' time and if people still have the same feelings they do right now. Well, I love Judgment Day, and I would have been on my list had it been done at the time. Mm. Uh, although Judgment Day, I have found to have had one of the most confusing release schedules, and not just release schedules, but the order in which it comes out. Like, I don't know what order. It, I'm constantly, I mm -hmm. know I'm not reading it in the right order, and I've just decided I give up. I'm just going to like read stuff as it comes through. I don't even know. But I've really enjoyed it nonetheless, even though I had stuff spoiled for me because the reading order was unclear. Mm. Um, but that's not the creator's fault. You know, um, but I mean, well, they could, they did a, they did a particularly shitty job in terms of how it's structured for in, in digital format, mm -hmm. I think, but, um, it's a wonderful event. I believe the trade payback is wrong as well. I think the trade payback, oh. if I remember correctly, if, if I've read this correctly, and I may be reading this completely wrong. So I apologize. I, I think I've read that they've actually put one of the tie-ins in the wrong position within the whole story. So I think they might have been corrected now, but they kind of like they tell an ending, then they go back and lead up to the ending or something like that. So they've kind of got one issue in the wrong place in the in the trade, apparently. Oh yeah, yeah. So, well, that said, the Gillen, 
Oh my God. The Gillen, the Gillen penned issues of that event are very good. And I do recommend folks at least read those, but, um, but yeah, so let's talk about that top 10 list. Um, and, um, where things have ended up on that, that's getting, that's getting, that'll be released by the time you guys listen to this episode because I edit things (laughs) (laughs) and this is going to be online like tomorrow or whatever. But, um, tell me, let's talk about that top 10. So the, uh, the top 10 starts with the death of Superman. Um, as as uh, in tenth place, uh, it just sneaks into the list. Actually, um, uh, an interesting quirk of the voting is that um, if any comics got the same score as another comic, I then look to see who got the most first place votes, and mm. um, Death of Superman had more first place votes than the comic in eleventh place, which was Multiversity. So it gotcha. just snuck uh, snuck in there. But yeah, Death of Superman, um, which few people did say, um, does that count as an event? Um, I think absolutely it does. Oh, yeah. um, but other people were trying to trying to split the vote a little bit by putting the return of the super uh, no um, return of Superman in there and also the rise of the Supermen and saying well there's three events of in one isn't there and uh, mm. people were splitting the votes a little bit but even with that I think it's still so popular it still made it into the top ten. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that, but- I really think that's a classic example of people thinking something is a jumping on point. I mean, partially because of that being at the height of the comic speculator um mm. moment like i think my husband's family had like five issues of that in storage bin that we dug out um uh where it's like i don't know i didn't read it at the time i don't really know it i don't know if it was a good jumping on event but i think a lot of people thought it was <laughs> yeah I, and it divides people still i think as um because it's such a straightforward story a lot of people don't like it and think it's not complicated enough or uh i suppose emotionally intelligent mm-hmm. enough as a, as an end of Superman. I do like there being a blunt force. This is just, there is someone stronger than him and he's got to deal with it. And then, you know, it's a case of, I suppose a lot of people, do you see in the artwork um, the story that's being told or do you not see it? And if you see it, then you, you'll, you'll have fun of the story. If you read the story and the artwork's not really telling you the emotions behind it, you'll go, well, this is just a bit of a dumb mm. punch up. So I do think that's there a is a, point. There is a bit of a you know a divine line for people there, and I think either way is a fair read of it, to be honest. Well, on my list was whatever happened to the man from tomorrow, which was an end of Superman. I was shocked that that didn't end up on the list anywhere. No, and it was eligible. Um, again, yeah, I have to see where that is in my uh, in my list. I'll have to try and um, see because to 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 be completely honest, um, on the final list, like the master list. With mm-hmm. no um, no limitations, I have over two hundred and ten uh, different events that were picked for by at least one person. Oh, God, <laughs> um, and so there's a lot of events on here like which didn't didn't have a chance of getting in because there's just there there are a lot more events out there than you think there are. Right, um, right, right. It's just it's just massive. But I just yeah. would have thought that Kurt Swan and Alan Moore together writing an end of Superman that takes place over like, I think like two issues would have mm. been a top event because like, I mean, to me, one of the greatest comics writers of all time working with a classic comic artist, that's like, cause that's like Ilana Bate. And then it's a manageable yep. length. And like, I, that's the end of Superman that I, that I really care about. But um, that one was so, in 110th place. I can now reveal God, exclusively. You, I'm going to blame this on people being young and not knowing what's good for them. No, I. Uh, it was I uh, it was just above Armageddon 2001. 
Oh my god! Uh, which I it's, do not know what that is. Nor do I. Well, you have all these like you know Judge Dredd kind of two hundred eighty. Th- I mean, I'm I'm I don't know. I don't really know that sector of the world, but um, but yes. Now coming in at number, let's do a coming in at number nine. Number nine. Um, it was Seven Soldiers of Victory um, by um, Grant Morrison, J.H. Williams uh, on the uh, the bookend issues, and then um, what it's seven different four part um, uh, miniseries, each with different characters, the focus. Um, so yeah, this one again, I think maybe people were a bit reluctant to vote for it and think, well, is mm. that actually an event? But uh, if you think I'm being hypocritical, saying 52 was an event, this wasn't an event. I think I I'd say. <laughs> Seven Soldiers of Victory, yep, fair enough. Seven Soldiers of Victory at least has a bookend to it. It has a um, prelude. It has a series of stories that all lead up to a single focus point, which is in the final issue. It is, in a sense, a small form version of Age of Apocalypse. It's the same uh, mm. format as that with the um, okay. like the Alpha and the Omega issues, almost that sort of that mm. sort of thing. And then everything in the middle is a series of miniseries. I think. I think Seven Swords does does count as an event because it does remember that it's got an endpoint and it does keep referring back to the uh, the the main villains in at parts throughout the different stories. So it is getting somewhere, but it is probably one of the less eventy events that we've got in the list. I think. Well, what do you mean less eventy? So I think it's 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 got elements of soap opera in it. Um, so an example, um, the Bulleteer story in it. Um, her story doesn't really have any point uh, to the main part of um, um, Seven Soldiers. It's just a, a bit of a way for him to have a dig at comics culture and artistic culture as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of a, a side venture that doesn't really have any sort of need to be there, but because you've got to do Seven Soldiers, they've got to put something in there. So with um, Seven Soldiers, I do think it goes on tangents. It loses its way a little bit, and it's not always focused on doing a big narrative that has a single conclusion, but somehow it does end up doing that. And probably by chance more than anything else, it manages to basically tie itself up in a way that makes sense. For me, I, I, I listed it because um, it has a lot of really interesting ideas in it. And the vast majority of the art is ranges from good to stunning. Mm-hmm. Um I think a lot of events live and die by like the fact that they have 80 different artists assigned to them and some of them will be great and some of them will be shit. Yep. And um, I really was glad to see an event where they were able to say this artist does this one and that artist does that one. And at least to the best of my recollection, stick to that in ways where the art is actually part of the world built in each of the individual comics. Um, it you They use some really cool classic comics ideas and revitalize them into the modern age they give us trans shining the beginning of trans shining night, which is like, mm-hmm. I love trans shining night is a mm-hmm. great character. Um, and, um, and I think it has, yeah, it's something to say about comics and just, but JH Williams's art is so freaking beautiful. Oh my God. That's the um, secret weapon of the whole thing is that the, um, the last issue, JH Williams does an impression of every other artist who has done a book beforehand. So J.H. Williams in some cases, draws, make it look even yeah. better. Yeah. <laughs> so just from doing an impression of like, you know, um, um, Pascal Ferry or doing an impression mm-hmm. of Yannick Paquette or um, I think it's Ryan Suck who does his sound stuff. Yeah. And J.H. Williams, you know, it's a bit like um, Stuart Immonen when he did um, that stuff in Next Wave. The fact they're so talented and can like mimic other artists 
it makes the story feel more connected than it actually probably is. It, it comes mm. to more of a conclusive point because he does such a good job of making it come to a point rather than the story itself. I don't think any other artist in the world probably could have brought that together the way that Jake Williams III did. Yeah, they're truly a genius, and yes. I hope someday I'll get to meet them. Mm. So bring me to number eight. Yeah, eight has a little bit of a jump in terms of points, uh, but number eight is Age of Apocalypse, um, uh, a, a, a favorite of yours, I believe. Uh, I didn't list it. I'm correct that I did not list it, which is good because mm. I, I don't think I read. I don't think I read it. I think like I was reading X Men at the time, and then this was sort of beginning to usher in some art that I didn't like, and I think I didn't read really any of it because right, it was yeah. just two nineties for me. That is, it is. There is a big. Um, that is like a big gate you got to get through. I think of with Age of Apocalypse in particular, it's kind of like let's leave let's leave the eighties behind and let's head into the nineties. Is the feel of it anyway? That's the impression mm-hmm. you get yeah. on it. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of people go, well, actually, no, I was enjoying the style of the previous stuff, and uh, I'm a bit worried that you know when it's going off a new direction and things are getting scary and different. It's it's it, it's like the different eras of Doctor Who, isn't it? It's like oh well. Well, mm. I was really enjoying David Tennant, and now you got this, this the new Matt Smith guy. He seems really scary. So, yeah, I think it's one of those comics that does it does end as a a, a finale for a lot of people. They just go, "Well, world ended. That's the end. I don't have to read his pockets. What comes next? I'll just stop." But a lot of people, then you know, uh, as a compromise, did then say, "Well, no, this is where I'm going to start now. Now there's yep. something new. This is going to be my new thing, and I will get into it." So it was a bit of a generational shift for the X Men, I think, and they did mm-hmm. they did probably need it. Mm. Yeah, I just wish they could have done it with artists that I liked the aesthetic of more. Yes. Um, yeah. For, but, you know, that I have my particular aesthetic biases. Um, so tell me about number seven. Number seven is um, the only comic in the top ten I've not read, uh, which mm. is DC One Million, um, also by Grant Morrison. Um, now, I don't really know much about this at all. I, I did a lot of research into it. Um I look into the concept of it and the idea that it was a story set in the, you know, uh, one million years AD and the current day, with the idea being that the things happening in the current day were then affecting things a million years in the future and so on. So it's a really interesting concept for a comic. I don't know how it actually reads, you know, once you actually, you know, you look into it and you read the story again and you go through it. But um, the concept is an incredibly strong one. And uh, a lot of people were very passionate for this. It got a lot of, um, it got particularly quite a lot of first place votes. If people are going to vote huh. for it, they would probably give it a first place vote, which is interesting. When is it from? Like roughly decade, whatever. Oh, I'd have to check that. Okay. Uh, so, the, oh, look, looks like this is from 1998. Interesting. Yeah, I was completely unfamiliar with it. Yeah, and um, uh, it's interesting because um, it's it's not like a. I don't think it's a really well known Grant Morrison work. To be honest, I think. No. If you're thinking of Grant Morrison and you think of mainstream comics, you think of um, after the JLA run that they did first. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing that comes, even though that's not really, you know, bits of it could be called an event, I suppose, but it's not an event run. But that's one you think of, or you might think of New X-Men or Final Crisis or, or those sort of things. But DC One Million's kind of been lost a little bit to time, I think. So mm. it's interesting so many people are so passionate for it still. And, yeah, and, I've know, never heard of it. Yeah. yeah, it's it's it's. I feel like that's one of the great things about doing lists like this is people will say, "I'm really passionate about this story," and you go, "Oh well, there must be a reason for it. I, I probably <laughs> need to put it on the reading list at some point." You know, I've got a yeah uh, something like this or Final Night, which I've not really heard of before. Like you think, "Oh well, 
people are so passionate, then clearly they must be onto something. And even if they're not, well, it'd be interesting to read, I think. So yeah, that's that's one that's on my uh, watch list now. Oh, so tell us about number six. I'm excited for this one. Yeah, number six is Infinity Gauntlet, um, which is the highest up of the um, uh, Jim Stalin ones. Mm-hmm. Um, Stalin appears several times in 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 the list with um, uh, what Infinity War, um, Infinity Gauntlet, and other Infinities. I'm sure in there somewhere as well. I can't <laughs> remember half of them half the time. It's an Captain Infinity Marvel. Crusade. There's like a yeah. Thanos War. Yeah, stuff like that. There's. A lot of a lot of that. Is there more Starlin than Morrison? I guess even in the list overall, yes. Um, mm. Morrison always shows up towards the top of these lists, I suppose, because it's a bit of a fan favorite. But uh, yeah, Starlin is in this quite a lot, to be honest. And and Keith Giffen, yeah. you know, kind of like the DC, mm. almost the DC, DC equivalent, you could argue, like those two actually yes. together invented <laughs> space, <laughs> really for for comics. Um, you know, there wouldn't be any, there wouldn't be anything outside of the Earth's atmosphere if it weren't for those two. I don't think, but. Yeah, because um, um, stuff like Annihilation shows up as well earlier on the list, stuff like that. So, yeah, those two really, you know, dominate uh, quite a lot, to be honest. Um, but yeah, it, it hit number six in the in, in the list. Um, uh, I mean, what do you think of Infinity Gauntlet? Is that a favorite for yourself? It is, but for very weird niche reasons. Um, oh, good. If folks want to hear me talk about it at length, film critic James Hancock and I had a big conversation around the works of Jim Starlin in the lead up to the Guardians movie coming out. Mm. Uh, And I think that episode of the podcast is probably a good one folks should check Mm. out. But one of my things with Infinity Gauntlet is how there's some really subtle feminist stuff coming through these stories. Um, Mm. The Like Thanos is an incel and (laughs) it is like a central part of why he is a bad guy. Um, He is like, creepy stalking death and she doesn't actually like him because she you know has better taste than that and we learn you know we we later learn it's cuz she likes deadpool because he makes her laugh which is like so sharp but um you know the other piece with this is like nebula um you know in 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 the climax of the story all the big tough guy superheroes are pummeling each other and everybody thinks nebula is a zombie dead in the corner Mm-hmm. Um, and she has been beaten and she has been brutalized, but they're also busy beating each other up that she just yoink grabs the infinity gauntlet. And is like, none of you were paying attention to me. All of you were treating me like I was an object, including the heroes who were basically ignoring that she was even a person. Now the gauntlet's mine. Now, I'm going to be even more feminist for her to get to keep it. But I just love the whole idea of there's this woman who's present the whole time and everybody's acting like she's not there. And maybe they should fucking pay attention to her because actually she is there and she's, you know, thinking and she's a person with agency. Um, and if so I remember I really correctly, her, her use of the gauntlet is smarter than Thanos' as well. So, so when Thanos uses the, the, the gauntlet, it's very much like, here's a big masculine, like, I'll knock you back and that'll be it. When she uses it, she uses it in more terrifying ways, if I remember correctly. She's, she's, mm-hmm. she's actually thinking about the different possibilities. You can connect the different gems together and do different things with them it's not just like here's a big boxing glove i can punch you with she's got mm-hmm. you know she's got actual things she'll she'll do to you and it's really scary because she's a much more complex mind so yeah she makes her really strong like final battle i suppose for for, for them in that sense like she's she's a much more interesting uh nemesis i suppose than, than he, he he ends up being mm-hmm 
Yeah, yeah. So that for me is actually my like niche reason why I'm mm. really into it. After then, you'd, you'd go into number five on the list, which is uh, which is Inferno. And I'd yeah. interested to see if you think there's any <laughs> comparisons between maybe like a uh, a Nebula and a Maddy Pryor, perhaps. Oh God, yes, absolutely. It's a really good point there. Um, I, I did. A, I, th- I think it's funny though that your your Inferno blur, but no point mentions Daredevil and his sexy struggles with a vacuum cleaner. Um, but you do talk about like the significance of the comic. I mean, it's so significant to have a comic in the eighties in which New York becomes hell on earth. Like there's so much in that decision mm-hmm. um, that is like a really a time capsule of the eighties and of people's imaginings of New York in that moment. Uh, but also some realities of New York in that moment, you know, but, um, but yeah, I think you're right that there's definitely a Madeline Pryor and Nebula parallel between those two events. That's very sharp. She's such a fascinating character to lead that story, I think. Um, and, you know, I, I think the, um, the, the, the Inferno stories is set in different sections again. It's like there's, here's the, uh, the, the, the magic storyline with um, Colossus, or here's the story of the evil X-Men or, or here's the section where Jean and Maddie do their sort of final signing battle, stuff like that. And I think what's really strong about Inferno is the fact it's not just dense, but it portions everything out so well. It's so well paced. Um, it, you know, every character kind of gets like little moments. Like, who would have thought that Inferno would end up with like Longshot getting a hero moment at the end? <laughs> you know, it's like who's going to fight me now? And Longshot's the one standing. Oh, I'll I'll do it. I guess. Like you wouldn't you wouldn't think of that, but it's the sort of thing that's like that's that's what I like from event storylines. I love an event, especially in a existing universe where the unexpected character is the one who's going to help, show up and help mm. save the day. It's not just going to be oh, is Wolverine, is Iron Man, mm-hmm. is Captain America? They're going to save the day again. It's like no, let's find someone who's a bit obscure and they'll save this bit of the day, and then this character will save this bit of the day, and so on. And I think that's that's where a shared universe can really. You know, it can really sing, I think, especially with events. I agree with you. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that's great. And I actually, that's another thing that Grant Morrison does do in a lot of their stories, too. Um, yes. Yeah, exactly. They do like to pull those together. Cool. Yeah, and it's just satisfying, you know. Um, everyone's kind of got like, you know, a bit of a soft spot for some random B list character or whatever. And then <laughs> the moment they get a big moment, you're like, oh, great, they finally had their turn, you know, and it's just, it just is validating in a way, which is quite nice. Mm hmm. It is fun. Number four, definitely one I voted for. Hoxpox, uh, House of X slash Powers of Ten. Uh, that's by uh, Jonathan Hickman, uh, R.B. Silver, and Pepe Larraz. Um, so this was the grand relaunch of uh, the X-Men in their Cohen era. Um, the idea being that Maureen McTaggart, the long-term human associate of the X-Men, is actually a mutant herself. And her mutant power was that when she dies... She is reborn, and the timeline resets completely, and she's got her memories. So what we find out is that Moira has uh, died several times to come back, and she's realized that the X-Men, and the mutants as a, as, a, as a whole, as a species, are always doomed. So she makes it her new mission to try and find a way to make the X-Men live, and that ends up with them ending up on the island nation of Krakoa, which is a living mutant island. So it was really a way to give the X-Men a new sense of agency after a long time of, well, frankly, Marvel Studios not having the rights to mm-hmm. the films. 
So therefore, the Avengers became the de facto big franchise that Marvel Studios got to run. Um, as soon as the franchise got back into Marvel's hands, uh, um, suddenly the X-Men become popular again as a, a surprise. But it was, um, I suppose, a way to kind of freshen them up and give them a new, uh, a new facet to the mutant metaphor, I think, um, which had run a little stale and, and people were more and more noting like, you know, the, 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 the metaphor behind mutant kind is it's it's creaking a bit now in the modern age and sort of quite mm-hmm. work in the right ways. And so this seemed to be their way of kind of giving a new lease of life on the on the not just the characters, but also the the metaphor that powered them for so long. And it's really given us some of the greatest X-Men comics, like period. Um and um I mean, I think one of the most radical things that Hawksbox did is it went and told us that actually this woman is at the center of the story. This woman mm. who you probably hadn't paid much attention to, who, you know, gets killed in different points in time, or goes missing or whatever, that like actually this whole narrative, she is the third pillar of the future destinies of the world. Um, mm. And that's pretty radical, you know, even if certain things about her have been revealed since um i in fact i'm going to avoid spoilers of that for once but um (laughs) it still is like really a radical thing to decide that moira mctaggart of our people is actually at the heart of the x-men story and and um she was put on the the same pillar that the other characters put on for for years so you had xavier you had uh, magneto you had apocalypse as these three different ways of this is how mutant kind could move forward and moira lived life with each of them and realized they're all going to fail these these three you know mainstays of X Men continuity for years, all their approaches are essentially wrong. I need to guide them into a third one. Probably to persuade them that it's their idea because that's the yes. kind of people they are. So it was fascinating to see her manipulate them into the right place to get things where they need to be. Obviously, things have now changed with her, and, uh, and like I say, in ten years' time, let's see where the X Men stand mm-hmm. if they're still or not, or what's happening. But it did seem like a really necessary revamp for the characters at the time. And uh, I think it's helped. It, it, it came at the right time when Twitter was still a thing that really mattered and people could gather together on on Twitter every week, talk about the issue, form a bit of a community hive mind, and then you mm-hmm. know, build up a new internet fan base for, for the X-Men, which was a different audience they've had before. So it, it seemed to catch the moment, I think, for, for the, uh, yeah. the franchise. It did what events want to do, which is f- become a moment where old readers come back and new readers come in, and it does both of those things in a satisfactory manner. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is one of the only events that I think really does do that. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think yeah, there's an argument, there's recency bias, which is why it's so high, but I also think it was such a new era for people that it just brought in so many new people to the X-Men. They all came in at once that it's going to hold nostalgia value now moving on. So even in years to come, people will still be looking at this and going, well, that was my intro into the X-Men, which I still read now. And I think it'll still, it'll have that lasting power because of that. It, it hit the right audience. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. Um, there's a bit of a jump now, again, in terms of points. Uh, each of the the, the, the list in the top three, they all are miles apart from everything else. So there's a big gap between place four and place three. And in place three is Crisis on Infinite Earths, um, aka DC's biggest, messiest story of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I I have a soft spot for Crisis of Infinite Earths, even though it's arguably a complete disaster while you're reading it, and <laughs> it only comes together sort of at the end, and you can go, oh, they 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 basically stuck the landing, so great. In my mind, yeah. Well, I, I definitely has uh, Mark. You know, I mean, George Perez, mm-hmm. Jerry Ordway. Like, you have the artists who just can do whatever the fuck in there, and they're so high quality and so rich and detailed that it can get away with like you can ignore a lot of faults because they're so strong. Yeah, absolutely. And and George Perez actually, we talk about um, Morrison and Stalin. George Perez is in this list quite a lot. I think oh, he's I'm probably sure. the most. The artist shows up the most because he was brought on to kind of help smooth over stories that might have been a bit messy otherwise. Like, you know, JLA Avengers is, is higher up on the list. Um, mm-hmm. And I think he is the linchpin for a lot of these stories. He is the thing that makes these these events really sing and, and gives them that feeling of this isn't just another big story. This is a major story. He makes them feel massive. But also, he's the he's the artist who's most known for doing an, um, doing a really crazy detailed crowd shot where you can see every figure and recognize them, and it's actually a well composed crowd shot. So events are always like, let's do some big crowd shots, and when you think who's going to ace a crowd shot, it's going to be George Perez. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And you can see DC try then to make that generational thing and be like, well, obviously, who's who's kind of like the inspired by Perez? Uh, well. Phil Jimenez, let's let, let's have yeah, him. Yeah, Phil Jimenez is you know, definitely uh, you know, the doing next the crisis and for that. But yeah. yeah, and and that's always been one of their big things. Um, but yeah, Crisis Infinite, I suppose, is such a it's such a game changer as well in the in the, the fact that it it generally did change everything. Um, and events afterwards try to try to match that energy. I don't think many events have been able to, apart from at DC, where they 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 reset the universe every five years, mm-hmm. but. This was like one of the first big times we actually got to see, you know, characters like we are going to filter down to the real core of what we think DC is right now. And we're going to make this our focus. And we just could go into Crescent for Earths, be confused for the issues that happens. But afterwards, they can go, well, I got through that. And I now know that this is what they think is important to me. I want to read these four comics off the back of it. or I want to read this off the back of it. And it gave them a way to move forward with the publisher, um, which, you know, they've tried to do several times since, like with um, Flashpoint and the New 52, but I don't think they've ever managed to replicate the success they had with this one. Well, the thing is, like, I mean, there's this is a crossover event, like, I mean, event where, like, we, it exists because DC was like, our continuity is a shit show. We have to fix this. Mm-hmm. We have to figure out a way to not lose readers who are obsessed with our more golden age incarnations of the heroes and not lose the people who are into the more silver age of the heroes. And also we need to end the silver age and bring on the bronze age. So um, how do we do that? And it's had to be driven by editorial, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so it's interesting that something that is so clearly intended as a way to clean up a line, which is an editorial problem, not a, not an artist's problem, ends up still being a thing that's really beloved by people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cause there's that there's that issue, isn't there? When the editor steps in and is leading something, um, the the fan base can revolt against it. I suppose that's mm-hmm. what One More Day was about, you know, the Spider Man story, oh, um, yes. which was basically just like, oh, editorial now want this to happen, or or House of M, the same same editor, uh, unsurprisingly, on both of those. But um, you've got to you've got to walk that fine line, haven't you? You still got to give them something. You can't just be like, we're going from this status quo to this status quo. 
And now that's what we're going to move forward with. You've got to bridge it into from one thing that's interesting to something else that's interesting. And you've got to make it the whole way through. It's got to be a story, um, which again is like the Brian Michael Bendis effect. I suppose that's what, that's what he does so well is he goes from event to event to event, never really lands anything, but the whole way through, at least it's interesting at the time you're reading it. And Crescent for Nurse had to make sure that it wasn't just a cleanup exercise. You know, people could have just, they could have just sent out a spreadsheet, you know, and then be like, right, well, here's, here's what happened to Supergirl. That's what, this is what universe she's on now. That sort of thing. It could have been that, but they managed to still make Crescent Infers feel at least like less of an editorial exercise and more of there's a, there's a reason for this. There is a narrative in here somewhere, we promise. Hmm. Maybe. <laughs> I'm not yeah. sure I believe that. <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, I think you can do that. Yeah. Moving to number two, we know, we talked a little bit about Final Crisis. Um, do we have anything else we want to say about that at this point? I would say that um, Final Crisis is a very bold name for a story. And I think that is evident throughout the actual story itself. Like DC saying, this is the Final Crisis. We won't do any more of these, we promise. And I think they've now done three, <laughs> three more <laughs> since then. Uh, arguably um our it's, brand is crisis yeah yeah exactly it's a really bold thing isn't it it's like the final secret war we'll do another one of these we promise well we know you will um so yeah it was it was a it was a really bold move i think and i think again final crisis is a story which pats critics on the back as they're reading it which i think probably helps it stand up um having said that uh, I'm one of the critics I think enjoys getting packed on the back. And I am surprised mm-hmm. didn't win the list overall. I I really thought this was going to be the runaway winner of the entire list. And it you know, it was miles ahead of position three, but it didn't come anywhere close to the winner. It really didn't. Hmm. Well, let's talk about number one that blew them all away. Secret Wars 2015, the uh, Jonathan Hickman, Eastside Rebic version of Secret Wars. Uh, so this was the uh, the one where the uh, different universes in Marvel's multiverse uh, were crashing into each other one at a time, like a giant pendulum, and uh, eventually had the uh, the Marvel universe and the Ultimate Marvel universe. And uh, in issue one of the series, they smash into each other and are destroyed forever. And then he gets you know eight more issues out of it. <laughs> um, it's it was a really big story for Marvel this one, um, and I think you have to you really have to uh, let yourself buy into it in order for it to work, um, because the end of the first issue says like R.I.P. the Marvel Universe, you know, nineteen sixty to two thousand fourteen or whatever it was, and I think a lot of people look at it and go, oh, that's not true. Uh, it's coming back. It'll you know it's the stations. It'll be back mm-hmm. in there a few weeks. Out. But if you can buy into it as you're going along, there is a lot of really good stuff in this one. And I think Hickman gets a lot of uh, flack for telling unemotional stories, which are based around um, logical progression rather than based around satisfying progression. Um, uh, there's normally like one woman who's painted completely in white paint. Um, there's uh, there's someone who's mm-hmm. normally got like a bead in their head. Like There's, there's similar things. Uh, someone's got a big it's mustache so normally. Uh, he, he, he hits similar points quite a lot, but this one, I think it was, he was still very fresh. Uh, I think the work he was doing at this point, um, and he nails this one. I think, um, there's bits of it, which, you know, are a bit like superfluous. And I think that's, 
it's one of these stories which has a lot of tie-ins, which which do interesting stuff, but you you really don't need to have quite so much in the main series as you do of that of that side of it. Um, but at the heart of it, you know, the story it tells around Doom and uh, Reed Richards in particular, it does give their dynamic, which is one of the most played out and tied dynamics in the entirety of comics. It gives it a sense of freshness, which it needed, and it does it does form quite a nice final bow on their story, even though I know they're mm. going to have more stories to come. So I think The Secret Wars, you know, it, it wouldn't be my choice for this, the top comic in this list, but I can absolutely see why it was the top comic, and I can see why it ran away of it, because it is, again, a very satisfying comic to read while you're reading it. Well, you know, it wasn't on my list, and I realized when I heard it, I had this gut reaction of like, oh, Secret Wars. And then I realized I haven't read any of the core books. I mean, I was reading Marvel when it happened. And so I read some of the Secret Wars, you know, tie-ins. Um, mm. And some of them I liked, like all the Angela books. Be- I mean, and the yes. Angela 1602. 16- thank you. The Angela 1602 book that came out, I mean, has one of my favorite lawyer jokes and my lawyer friends' favorite lawyer jokes in all of comics. Mm. Uh, and has beautiful painted art because Stephanie Hans is a fucking genius. And, you know, it's just a delight. Um and I was, so I kind of was like, oh, I like these little bits that are around it. Um, but I never actually read the core series. I don't even know, you know? So I just mm. was sort of like, oh, here's this thing where there's going to be these like little random bit of stories around it that I might check out because it has creators handling characters who I'm interested in. Yeah. And then that was just, that was really the the only way I interacted with it. I didn't even think to read the core series. I think a lot of people probably would have voted for it on that basis as well, you know, um, uh, this was a series where you had um, well, um, Sidesbury did a um, uh, Elsa Bloodstone story and Kieran Gillen did a Agent Brand story. And there's lots of um, the side stuff is interesting enough as like one, one-off Elseworlds. In fairness, a lot of 2000 AD energy in the Titans. Um, a lot of that comes through, I think. But um, you can read those and be like, well, I don't need to be the main series. I've read this. I enjoyed that. I really like Secret Wars. Because it still feels like you're getting the the general gist of Secret Wars, even though you're reading a random tie-in that's just loosely connected. Um, it's a very satisfyingly arranged uh, event, I, I suppose. It's a massive one, but I think people, more than most other events, could go, well, I want to read this, you know, this four-issue miniseries, and mm-hmm. that'll then do it for me, as opposed to, I've got to read these three tie-in books because that'll be important to the story. That wasn't so important. It didn't matter so much with this one, so... I do think it, it provided like a series of different jump on points for readers of different interests. If you if you're a big Marguerite Bennett fan, there's a Marguerite Bennett book, you know. Oh yes, you know it's all that sort of stuff. So I think there's a there's a lot of um, a lot of benefit to the way it was actually organized as an event. I think that that probably helps it along a lot as well. Do you think that your sites, I would almost say surrealist absurdist attempt to cover infinite crisis impacted where infinite crisis landed in the list here i think i made infinite crisis more popular to voters than it would have yeah, been otherwise i think, I um, think infinite crisis, where did that appear there, there's a bit of a jeff john section in the middle of the list somewhere um, it is 25th 25. place 25th place yeah, yes. 25. yeah so right in the middle of the list and i think most people would agree that infinite crisis is not a 25th best event of all time um i uh, a lot of people will get mad at me for saying that but um yeah infinite crisis so it was kind of like an art piece in a sense it's like a weird project to kind of look at you know 
events are meant to be the big the big thing that you jump on and new readers come on and they go, oh, what's the cool big event this year? Oh, it's Infinite Crisis. Right, let's get this and we'll get to see bits of all the cool stuff from DC. And then whatever it is that I like about this, that'll be what I read next. So if I read Infinite Crisis and the Wonder Woman stuff's really good, I'll pick up Wonder Woman 1 next week. Or if the Superman stuff's really good, I'll read Superman or Teen Titans or whatever it is. But Infinite Crisis was one of those events where everything is in it, but nothing is given a chance to breathe. And it's all mm-hmm. massively confusing. If you're a new reader, or even like for, for, for me, who's read comics for a while now, you look at it and you go, I don't know who these characters are. This story starts in the middle. Uh, everyone's mm-hmm. had like you know 10 years of character developments happened. It's not explained on the page. So I basically start on the first page where the Justice Society Watchtower is destroyed. And I said, well, what's, what's destroyed that then? Because the comic didn't tell me. So I asked a friend, <laughs> what destroyed that? And they went, oh, this destroyed it. And I was like, oh, that's a, oh. So the thing that destroyed the Watchtower, what, what is that? So then I asked someone else who that was. And then they explained that. And then that led into a rabbit hole. And I just fell down. It's like, what's, what? And in, by the time you've actually got past the first page of the story, you've asked about 10 people for guidance on what's happened beforehand to understand how it all makes sense. Now it all comes together. And, you know, events can be really, it can be really exciting to have that sort of, oh, I need to go on Wikipedia now. I need to go read some stuff and see what's going on. But also it can be like, ah, well, I did not send any of this stuff. I'm going to go back to Marvel or Image or whatever. I'm going to read that instead because that at least mm-hmm. makes sense. So, well, yeah. Um, so I want to make sure we take a moment here to do some listener questions. Although actually, first, before I do that, I'm not going to go into details on it, but in case any of our readers are curious, I will share my top 10 list, which um, is the sort of thing where like now in retrospect, I'm like, oh, maybe I would have moved this or that or the other, but here it is what it is. Elana's mm-hmm. list, number one, Jimmy Olsen 133, a.k.a. Kirby is coming, oh. which you said I could do. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it was an event. It was an event at the time. It said, this is a big thing. Kirby's coming to DC. Yep, so I think it counts. It's the, the real world of comics meets the event within the comic. Number two, Seven Soldiers of Victory. Number three, Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow. Four, mm-hmm. Inferno. Uh, five, Crisis on Infinite Earths. Mm-hmm. House of M. Acts of Vengeance. Maximum Carnage. And then what I realized I actually probably would have done instead of House of M in retrospect is Dark Phoenix Saga. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a solid choice. I don't know where that came in the final list. I'll have to have a look at that one. Um, well, I, you had it, said to me that like nobody else had voted for Maximum Carnage, which kind of blew my mind. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's absolutely correct. I don't think... I don't think got many points at all. Um, That's so funny. And I just had to say, like, well, I guess nobody else is in their early 40s. <laughs> like, that's the, the only <laughs> explanation I can think of here. Because, like, that was such a big thing. And, it be- it, I mean, it became a video game even. And um, the bits of it that I have reread since then uh, were still v- very entertaining. Um, and it also has enough of the classy Bronze Age-looking art to still appeal. I think, I think a part of it may be... How do you hold of some of these things? Um, I had a trade paper pack of Maximum Carnage that I bought at the time, where I guess my yeah. brother brought it and I stole it. So, but is it is it something that you can uh, you know can you get a good copy of it now? Is it do people look at it and go, oh well, that's part of like oh well, that seems like Clone Saga stuff. Is that complicated? Like, I think oh. probably uh, there's probably an argument that some of these books would do better if there was just like here is Maximum Carnage, there's your trade paperback, buy it, and that's it. And people don't have to worry about oh what came before what came after it. Some of these, some of these things, and uh, this one is in print, but some of them aren't even in print anymore or not collected mm. in the right way. 
And I think maybe, you know, maybe that's part of it. Maybe just, you know, Carnage just gets lumped in as Clone Saga stuff and people don't want to jump on and try it. Well, I am definitely anti-Clone Saga and Pro Max Carnage. I did just take a quick look at the Marvel Unlimited app. And there is like a Maximum Carnage event under their events that does give you the reading order and right, everything yeah. in the proper place. Um, and I'll just say for folks, this like was one of my jumping on points for reading comics, period. Superhero mm. comics, period. Let alone Spider-Man. Um, so for what it's worth. Yeah. Right, give it a try. And um, did I say my final one was... Oh, yeah, we talked about Dark Phoenix Saga. Yeah, that was surprising it didn't end up. But I think I'd forgotten that it counted as an event, which is stupid, but I kind of had forgotten that. I think a few people may have forgotten about that one. Or, cause it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like a series of issues across the run, really, isn't it? It's not like, I don't know, the, the, the Dark Phoenix Saga was kind of like, there's a few spotted issues at a point, which is like, you could read them all together in a trade, but it'd be like, this issue, then two issues later, then three issues later, then Dark Phoenix Saga, and that's the story in a sense. It's kind of like, it feels almost like just seeds in part of the run because that's how Claremont tells his stories. I wonder mm. if that locked it out a little bit perhaps, but I don't know. Mm. It's, it's, it's a strange one to, to, to not have in the top 50. Well, I want to make sure we take some time to get to some listener questions. Uh, former podcast guest and credit Greg Silber writes, how do y'all feel when you find out a comic you've been following is about to participate in a big event? Does it excite you to see a comic you like become part of a larger story? Or do you, like me, get annoyed that the main story may get derailed? I, nowadays, I find it exciting again. Uh, mm -hmm. I have found it annoying in the past. Um, but with comics being so stop-start nowadays, um, I don't mind it so much. Um especially because it does feel more and more now now like the the writers actually get to talk to each other ahead of these things happening. So if, I know, um, Dan Slott's doing Empire, um, he will actually work with like an Al Ewing or, or someone like that, and then they'll make sure the stories are planned well in advance so it doesn't feel like too much of a, of a divergence or a tangent. Um, I suppose it does also depend on what the actual event is. If the, the main event isn't that good, then... It's going to be even more annoying when it when it crosses over into the comic book you actually like, you know. Especially if there's um there's a period of time where Brian Michael Bendis got basically every single Marvel event, you know, for years in a row. And mm -hmm. if you didn't like Bendis, uh, well, you might be quite happy that you were reading, I don't know, um, let's say you're reading Heroes for Hire or something like that. It's like no Bendis here. Then his event will come in, and suddenly you have to be, you know, getting some of that in the, in the work. So, I think when it's like a singular voice that you don't want in your stories and that gets in the way that can be really irritating in particular um but for me now i, I know i quite like seeing the writers take on the challenge i think uh, seeing them go you you know you're doing this street level book about a uh, detective superhero but now aliens are coming what's he gonna do about that that's that's quite i know i quite i think quite entertaining personally i i think i think i agree with you now i mean there used to be it always was that like whatever weird niche book you were reading is about to get ruined by some stupid event comic. But I do think that they've done a better job lately of having mm. it not ruin things. Although I will still say that I think one of the best moments in Inferno is when in Daredevil, um, mm -hmm. uh, Kingpin's assistant basically says to Kingpin on panel, sir, Kingpin, I regret to inform you we are currently in an X-Men event. And Kingpin <laughs> is just like, God, Damn it. Well, that explains why there's demons outside my room. I just, 
this is very frustrating. And I just like, it's like literally Anno Senti writes this and it's hilarious because it's, um, it's, it's, yes, it's a bit fourth world breaking, but it also sounds like something that would actually be said between those two characters. Yeah. Like, it, wouldn't it be great if that was, you know, Jane Eyre Jameson next day headline story says X-Men event happens again. Ugh. See you yeah. in four months. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, like, this is how Kingpin would feel. He's like, cause Kingpin's like, I don't usually have to deal with demons. Now you're making me deal with demons. This is such bullshit. I'm just trying to run a crime empire. This is really, um, this is really causing some real problems for my drug dealing right now. And I, I just, exactly. I just want to deal some drugs. Can I just not do that? Please, please. <laughs> Can you please exclude? I would like to be excluded from this X Men event. Yes. God damn it! <laughs> this is clearly Daredevil's fault somehow. Nonetheless, um, mm-hmm. Devil is in his name, so yeah, I, I love that beat. That fucking cracks me up. Um, yeah, it's great. That sort of thing. And you wouldn't get that voice, so yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of I'm trying to think of examples where it was terrible. Um, and I, I feel the, like oh god, please. I think there was a there was a famous it's famously a few years ago it was like this was the Peter David problem it was it was referred to like Peter David his books would get interrupted by every event yes. and yes. he would I think it's probably because he would make a deal of it himself and he'd be like oh I'm gonna cross over into you know scrolls or or whatever else is coming up next and so he'd make a big deal of it um, and that was always a, that was always a, a sort of notable one but then. I think you've seen other uh, so other writers since. Like I think Al Ewing's probably the example right now. He's probably the uh, in terms of the, the the sort of books he gets given. He's the Peter David of the current generation. It's like here's some C-list characters, make something of them, please. Um, but he does seem to. I think the 2018 experience means he can very quickly change his change his status quo and not really lose the characters. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's thing that I think was a problem more in the past than it is perhaps now. I think you're right. Yeah. Silent TT asks, what single story should have been expanded into an event? <laughs> it's such a good question, isn't it? That's such a good question. I, I've got some ideas. Have you got anything yourself? No. Hit oh, me. Well, here's, here's my thinking. I Like I said, I really like the stories where the underdog character suddenly has to save the day or get involved in something. And for me, I think it'd be really interesting if, what if you had really expanded out the end of the first volume of Runaways by Brian K. Vaughan and Eddie Jarfona, and you said, right, the Runaways, they're these characters who've got in all over the head, their parents are actually villains, things are going terribly wrong. What if you then, at the end of their story, launched them into a event with the parents as villains then you've also Ooh. got like you know other superheroes getting involved or caught or trapped or whatever by their parents or their parents working with i don't know like dr doom or, or some of the other big villains and you made it like these these kids like things have escalated wildly and they're now really over their heads so i could say perhaps like the last issue of his first volume where they, they, they were like fighting their parents make that into an event and have the kids really like struggle to to just you know get away from it with their lives. I think that's a wonderful idea. I the, like uh, it. the 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 on the other side for the distinguished competition, it probably be something like maybe um, Gotham Central and doing the same mm. sort of thing. Is to say, I don't think I don't remember there being a, a real story where you know the detectives had to deal with being in the middle of a crisis or something. But that could have been an interesting story as well. You know the mm-hmm. um, you know the, I I did I, I liked them doing the the one off stories of like you know. 
Joker or Mr. Freeze or whatever, but what if there was like a, a storyline where suddenly the detectives are in the middle of the sky turns red, like, oh, bloody hell, what are we going to do now? And they've got yeah. to try and survive as parademons fly through the air or whatever. And it's like, what do the police do in that sort of situation? That, maybe some of that could be interesting. People just in over their head trying to survive. You know, there's also these weird moments where you'll have in smaller stories, weird reality breaking things happen and it doesn't actually reverberate anywhere else. And sometimes it'd be interesting to sort of see what, there'll even be like a weird reality breaking moment in like classic era Suicide Squad. And that's mm. so cut off in its own little sec dirt, grim, yes. dirty section yeah. of the universe. It's almost like, wait, I'm sorry, the world almost ended in a Suicide Squad comic and you're having this parallel dimension space warriors stuff is leaking through from his reality but it doesn't show up in anything else and so it's sort of like is there is maybe there is this brief moment where other characters are forced to be interrupted in, and the next thing they know they're like i'm sorry there's a suicide squad hmm. that's not okay <laughs> like yeah I don't know. if there's um, like a, a like a batman story where it's like batman the world's ending you've got 24 hours to, to save us all it's like oh right what started this Oh, the the Doom Patrol is like the Doom Patrol. Oh, God's sake! Yes, exactly. It, you know, and it's just like, why? What are they doing? Why are they? You know, why have they messed with that rare metal? And now my Batman only only is is, is ruined or whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That exact kind of thing. There is a there is a Batman metal. I can't remember what it's called now. Oh, it called, I don't know. Uh, DC Metals is literally about special metals, and one of them is like Batman Onium or something. <laughs> But yeah, that's exactly it. Like, I feel like there was just something I was reading the other day where I have had the same feeling of like, this is a really niche comic to have this world-ending thing happening. I have to wonder mm. what what implications it might have had in other places. But that's because I'm, re- you know, I'm the one who's reading the weird niche side stories rather than the big ones and wondering where they would show up in the others for once. Um, yeah. So Chad Nevitt asks, why did you let Thanos war in? Isn't that just Starlin's Captain Marvel run, save the final issue? I love it and all, but how is it? How is a run, a monthly ongoing title, an event? I can't oh, even rules Chad. lawyer this personally. So, Well, Chad, obviously you're forgetting that this crossed over into Marvel Feature 12, um, duh, uh, the Bye to the Blood Brothers. Do you not remember that one? Yeah. Um, so it clearly crossed over into that story. And then uh, also there was like um, uh, an Iron Man storyline running around the same time and an Avengers storyline. So it did technically have crossovers. It wasn't just in the one series. Um, but again, I think it's uh, it's eventiness. It just had event nature in it. Like, um, you know, Invincible issue 60 is an event, but it's only one issue. Um, I don't think it's the publishing format that, complete decides if something's event or not. I think that's just a part of it. So um uh, yeah, Chad, you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well I'm glad we could work that out. Um I think that's the last of my listener questions. Other than Charlotte Ariel saying that the 52 Councils and Event Caucus being interested in a Truth and Reconciliation Commission I do think that brings us to the end of the uh, listener questions. Um, although, actually, I should ask, what was the inspiration to do Shelf Dust as a critic who's you know written for a lot of different sites before? For Shelf Dust, so I've written for um, um, Comics Alliance for a long time, and I was mostly doing um, uh, essay pieces for them and reviews. I wrote for CBR, I was mostly doing interviews for them. I also ran a, um, a newsletter called the MNT, 
um, with uh, Megan Purdy and Christian Hoffer and um, mm-hmm. uh, other really talented people as well for a while, and that was all news stories. And so I've kind of done everything you can really do within comics criticism, and I was getting a bit tired of running to other people's needs. Um, the stuff I did, um, I focused on a lot of um, indie work, web comics, um, stuff by people of color, queer people, things like that. And the websites would have to go, well, we can run that, but we also need to balance it out by doing a big feature piece on Wolverine and what he's up to this week, that crazy Wolverine. <laughs> so I wanted to do a website where I could kind of just do really obscure stuff and no one would really mind. And I had the idea really from Television About Pity. Remember that website from a long time ago, which mm-hmm. used to write about TV shows, but one episode at a time. So they'd write about, I know, Charmed, and they'd be like 60 essays on Charmed over the course of like, you know, uh, seven or eight years. And I thought, well, I could do something like that, really. Um, so Shelter started off really as being a sort of recap site with silly jokes and stuff thrown in it. And then grew over time to become more about proper essays. Um, uh, Comics Alliance uh, died, so I had no way else to write anything. Um, CBR moved away from. And so as I lost the other venues I was writing for, I thought, well, I'll just transfer all the other stuff into Shelf Dust. I've been writing silly stuff for Shelf Dust, but now I can start writing serious stuff. Or I can start writing proper um, critical analysis of some kind or whatever it is that I feel I want to do. And so that ended up being... I think the thing that pushed shelters into into a longer life than it would have had otherwise. It was just a, an outlet to start with, but it became mm. a way to actually write stuff that I liked writing, uh, writing about uh, in more more wide terms. So um, then, off the back of that, we started then uh, bringing in guest writers, and I've always insisted on paying guest writers. So uh, everyone who writes for shelters gets paid basically a a, a nominal fee, really, because I've not got much money for this sort of thing. It's all through <laughs> Patreon, but. Everyone who writes it gets paid because I think it's important to, to, to have, you've got to have some kind of step ups from somewhere. Um, and then from there, it's just kind of grown and we've had um, uh, different columns on there. We've had features, feature pieces on there. We've had uh, several podcasts now run through the website um, and more mm-hmm. things coming hopefully in 2023 and beyond. But yeah, for, for me, Shelters was just a fun outlet that became a bit more, bit more time consuming than I thought it was going to be. But uh, I'm, I'm really happy with where things are at the moment. Well, I was so excited when I got to write um, a piece for you. Uh, you were doing a long-running series, uh, <clears throat> trying <laughs> yeah. to get people to somehow explain what Infinite Crisis was. I um, I think we're all still unclear on what it was, but I am very clear that I got the opportunity to explain what the fuck OMAC is to people, which as any yes. listener of the show would know, I am happy to explain any Jack Kirby 70s stuff to anybody at the drop of a hat. Um, so that was a great pleasure, uh, especially when you took, when I when you allowed me to, uh, the question was, who is Buddy, Fl- Buddy Blank? And I got to respond with, it doesn't matter. And let me explain to you why. <laughs> and I was like, God bless you for letting me pivot it that way. And so my big question for you is, what's next for Shelf Dust? No more lists for a little while uh, okay. for Shelf Dust. Um, mm-hmm. But we do have other projects that we're going to be returning to in 2023. Um, so um, we have a um, new column starting up soon, which will be about uh, Pluto. Um, and William Moo's writing that one for us. Be oh, you mean like each... from Disney? Uh, no, the, the manga. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, William's <laughs> uh, writing about it volume by uh, volume. By volume. Um, 
So uh, we've got um, two of those written already, I think, uh, and more to come. Uh, we've done quite a bit on um, uh, Naoki Urasawa recently. Um, Mash is also uh, one of our writers has been doing um, some stuff on uh, Master Keaton, which I think maybe we'll return to at some point in the new year. Sorry, has been doing stuff on what? Say that again. Uh, Master Keaton, which is another uh, 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 manga. Um, oh, that was okay. um, that was an early work by. Um, um, by Urasara. Um and then um, yeah, Pluto was then subsequent to that. So we're trying to get more more. I suppose at the moment, um, Shelf just has as a, a in my head, it's got a reputation for being about Western comics more than anything else. I'm trying to get more manga on there, more more web comics, and and expand mm. out the reach a little bit. So we're doing these sort of features like this that will that help it. And then um, uh, the other thing I'm hoping to bring back in the new year is uh, a recurring column called Black Comics History. Um, which is tracking the history of black comics creativity one issue at a time and Love one it. year at a time. So we start in 1970 with a comic release in 1970 by a black uh, creative, then 1971, 1972, 1973, moving all the way through to the present day. Um, we've gone from 1970 up to around 1999. Um, so we're hoping to head into the 2000s in the uh, in the new year and have more features on on that one. But that's been a really interesting um experience bringing that together and, and seeing what the writers uh, have to you know have to have to say about the work that's been done over the years that's so cool um i i really appreciate the site it is does such smart thoughtful critical work and i really recommend folks check it out visit shelf dust support shelf dust um I got to be on your podcast to talk about one of my favorite single issues of a comic ever, which is, of course, the team goes to therapy for classic, you know, Suicide Squad and for X Factor because that's my brand. Um, yes, absolutely. Yeah, thank I you love, for on that one yeah. as well. We're, we're, and then there may be more podcasts in the new year as well. Oh, that would be fabulous! Mm. Um, always happy to go on and talk with you. And um, so, remind our listeners where can they keep up with Shelf Dust and where can they keep up with your work? So um, the website is uh, shelfdust.com. Um, and you can normally find us on most social platforms by looking for Shelf Dust Site, all one word. Uh, and then for myself, I'm on platforms now as Steve W. Morris. And uh, yeah, that's uh, that's the most places you can find us, apart from um, Patreon, Ko-fi, all those sort of places. Uh, we run on crowd support. We pay everyone for their work every time they do something for us. So if you like what we do and you'd like to contribute, greatly appreciate whenever anyone has the chance to do so for us. Fabulous. And as for me, I am on the social media platforms uh, with my handle, E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. That's E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. I haven't posted to Mastodon and post much, but I'm going to make an effort to give it a go. You know, um, I've been stuck with COVID for a long time, and so I'm trying to pace myself. Um, but um, I'm going to have that handle on whatever social platforms we end up doing because I want you guys to find me. Find me, interact with me. And if you'd like to give me a nice Hanukkah gift, please like and review Graphic Policy Radio on whatever podcast platform you listen to. It really means a lot to me and means a lot to the show. And as we like to say, keep it geeky.